0: Okay, so on this week's episode, we're going to continue with the Masters of Craft series, where you interview really people that are masters. They're at the top of their, their game. This week's uh, guest, Carl Godley, is one of the most incredible examples of versatility. Like, I mean, we're talking about the range uh, that Carl has demonstrated. In his work is bonkers. When you can write Jaws and the Jerk, can you talk about why you were why you wanted? Um, Carl on the show and what was it about his work that made you say I gotta gotta talk to this guy
1: you know Jaws was uh, for me a huge deal in terms of my own development I I must have caught it at exactly the right time so when I did see it I I was 15 I had recently learned about Patichefsky I had known about him and I had recently learned about him and I had seen uh, I think at this point, I had seen the movie Altered States. There are some issues with the movie Altered States, but it got me interested in Paddy Chavsky, which led me to Marty, which led me all these other, other things. But I was reading an interview with Paddy Chavsky, and this is a science fiction thing where a guy transforms and all that stuff. And what he said was, though, but this is really just a love story. And I was like, how can this be a love story? I was I was in that stage where I was caught on the surface of things. Well, how can this be a love story? I mean, this guy transforms, and he's a scientist. and he's... I was thinking about the spectacle and the outside of it. And when he said it was just a love story, Patichefsky, I was like, I have to figure out what's going on here. And I, I saw it a bunch of times. And I started to be able to see what Patichefsky was talking about. I started to be able to see what was underneath. So when I saw Jaws, I was like, Hey, this isn't about a shark. (laughs) This is about a guy who's afraid of the water getting over his fear of the water. Because by then I had the sort of eyes to see that. It changed the way I thought about the work. Like almost anything that I teach when it comes to armature and all that stuff, I would say a real understanding of it. Although I think I had a sort of intuitive understanding of it from being a Twilight Zone guy and a Planet of the Apes guy and those things. I started to, it started to be conscious and um, Jaws really solidified that. And I was just like, Oh, if I can do that, I'll be good. If I can do what that person is doing, I'll be good at this. And so uh, he's somebody I wanted to talk to for years Um, and Mm. didn't know him before this interview, but he was somebody, one of those people, you know, I wanted to meet before, you know, or I left this planet, I wanted to sit down and talk to that guy, so I couldn't have been more excited about that interview and to talk to him. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series with author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by screenwriter, actor, and comedian Carl Gottlieb, best known for co-writing the screenplay, Jaws, and its first two sequels in the blockbuster franchise. Carl shares how his background in improv strengthened his skills as a writer and discusses how to craft a script that comes alive on screen. So I know that you were uh, an improv guy mm-hmm. to begin with. Yes. Uh, so what what got you into improv? This is this won't be so much a biography, but I'm just curious about that. Like, what got you into I don't improv? Know,
0: back in the '60s, I was drafted into the U.S. Army, and I was. Wound up at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And my friend, Larry, my roommate, Larry Hankin, who's the actor who's been my pal since college, <clears throat> he got a job at Compass Theater in St. Louis, which was the ancestor of Second City. Okay. He, he was at an improv show in St. Louis, and I was at Fort Leonard Wood 100 miles down the road, down Route 66. So every chance I'd got, I'd get a weekend pass and go into St. Louis and hang out trying to pretend I wasn't in the army even though I had <laughs> the haircut
1: uh-huh.
0: and I'd hang out with the uh, with the players it was Jack Burns and uh mm. and uh
1: um, was Jack Burns the Burns and Shriver yeah later yeah, yeah yeah Jack Burns was in that company anyway
0: so and then uh Larry was the that show closed Larry went up to set was hired to go up to Second City and I uh, went in. I stayed in the army. I was in the All Army Entertainment Contest, and I was uh, a runner-up. But I got a few days leave. And in the meantime, Larry had gotten hired by Alan Myerson to open the committee in San Francisco. It was a brand new theater. You know, they had they would found the backers. And it was some uh, Alan Myerson and his wife Jessica who were. Refugees from Second City who thought they could do it better. Uh, By the way, I don't want
1: to. I am going to interrupt you really quickly because I would like to. Was there anybody in uh, in Second City who we might know when you were in Second City? It's often this, you know.
0: Oh, I, well, I wasn't in Second City. I, I was.
1: Only, oh, okay. I was only in the committee. Oh, okay, <laughs> but in uh, the committee. Well, in the committee, who was there?
0: Um. Uh, Let's see. When I started in the committee, I know most of them are dead now. There's Gary Goodrow and a guy, a black actor
1: named Mel Stewart. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I think I know Mel Stewart. I think I know who that is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It wasn't until six Well, let me let me jump quickly. I, okay. I went to the I went to the committee as a stage manager. They needed okay. a stage manager. I went as a stage manager. I played the part of stage manager a couple of times. You know, got an intro. Right. got a laugh. Then I went to New York. I worked for a Broadway producer who produced the committee on Broadway. And uh, Alan Meyerson was casting a new company for the committee in San Francisco. I helped him with New York auditions. And while I was doing it, I said, you know what, I can do this. How about I come back as an actor? I've done everything else in the theater. I've washed dishes. I've worked the box
1: office. I was the stage manager. I did the lighting. Now, were you always interested in theater? I'm sorry, I just don't want to... You were always interested in theater.
0: I was a dual major in theater and journalism, and I have made a living all my life in doing nothing but writing and being in show business. It was one of the best pieces of advice I got from my father was to do what you want, don't do what you have to do. Uh huh. That's what I did. And, uh, you know, I'm stuck in a civil service job that I hate. Mm-hmm. Always do what you want to do. So I graduated college in mid-year in January, and I got out in the winter in Syracuse. There was no graduation. It was just a wintry day. And I said, okay, I'm not going to be a cab driver or a carpenter or a merchant marine. I am going to only work in show business. I'm only going to, uh, if I get paid, that's fine. If I don't get paid, I don't care. I'm just going to work in show business. And one thing led to another, and I always worked in show business. You know, first I did tech and lights in Greenwich Village in a coffee house. And from there, uh, then I went uh, to San Francisco and did lights and sound for the committee and then started appearing as an actor and then went back to New York and then came back as an actor in 66. And that was the company with Howard Hessman and Nancy Fish. And and, uh, Peter Bonners was the director of that company. Del Close was in that company. Okay, yeah. Yeah, was, you know a lot. A lot of well-known people. Lee French. Uh, she was uh, the hippie flower child on the Smothers Brothers show. Goldie. Uh, it is all before your time, but no, anyway. well, not qu- almost. <laughs> so, so anyway, there I am in the committee, acting acting away, and it's San Francisco in the '60s. I was in San Francisco, '66 to '68. Ground zero for the Cultural Revolution. The Birds were the house band up the street at the the Peppermint Tree. I met David Crosby, and that was a lifelong friendship started then. And, you know, the Jefferson Airplane and all the San Francisco bands, we were all part of the same crowd. We would do benefit concerts for liberal causes, for the free speech movement, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were quite well known. And as a result, the company moved to Los Angeles, and we opened in L.A. at the Tiffany Theater, and we got rave reviews across the board. We got raves in the two big dailies, the Herald Examiner and the L.A. Times. We got raves in the Daily Variety and Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, and we got raves in the Avatar and the L.A. LA Reader, which were the two underground papers. So we kind of scored all across the board. We were a big hit. Now, were
1: these I'm sorry, were these sketches that you that were written, or was it an improv show? It
0: was true improv, but it was a set show. Here's the way improv worked: we do we work six nights a week, two shows a night, three on Saturday. After the first show, we would invite the audience to stay, and take suggestions, and then do a second show that was improvised based on the suggestions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But to be safe, we would include some pieces from the repertoire. Sure. Uh, or, uh, works in progress, you know, scenes that had succeeded as an improv and we were still working on them, trying to make them into something that was show worthy. So, and I was always very scrupulous about how we introduced material. I said, and now the scene from the repertoire are now an improvisation based on your suggestion. Sure. Or, uh, a work in progress based on your suggestion. And that's how the material evolved. And, and, uh, we, we were successful and um, so, we, and then we saw it because it was L.A. We started to get work. I got hired to do the Glenn Campbell summer show with okay. a bunch of new writers. Um, all of us had our first job in television. There it was Steve Martin. Steve so Martin was on that, yeah. Steve Martin, Bob Einstein, right? Yeah, Chris Beard, um, guy named Paul Ryan, Paul
1: Wayne. Now, did you guys all go over to the Smothers Brothers when this was
0: done? Well, we, went, we went first to the uh, Summer Brothers Smothers show, which was actually the Glenn, the Glenn Campbell's debut on television. Okay. We wrote for Glenn Campbell during the summer, and then they picked us all up for the winter season on the Smothers Brothers. Okay.
1: Rob Reiner was there too, right?
0: Yeah, Rob, Rob yeah. was in that company also. Uh, Rob was a, was a roommate. He had a little improv company of his own called The Session. With uh, Richard Dreyfuss and David Arkin, okay, Marjorie Doucet and um, a bubbly starlet named uh, uh, Bobby Shaw, uh, so we, you know, in those days, all the improv actors knew all the other improv actors. Sure, there's only four companies working. It was the Second City, the Committee, the Premise, and Compass Theater. And Compass was the ancestor of all of it. That's the one that started at the University of Chicago back in the 50s. Okay. And then Paul Sills and Viola Spolin. And
1: oh, sure. All of that,
0: all of so I was part of that. And, you know, we all knew each other. And, uh, you know, we all took great pleasure in, in playing together. You know, if there was some Second City guys and have happened to be in L.A., they'd find their way to the stage. They'd do a set with us, you know. And it, was, uh, it was great fun. And so,
1: I'm sorry, when you were doing, when you had, when you were doing uh, the set material, was this, what, did you sit down and write material, or was no. this, so. It was all, when you, all tradition, it was all. Okay. The okay.
0: And all the assumption, right. if you were watching the show with an eye toward hiring a writer, you could safely assume that if an actor said the words on stage, either in improv or in a set piece, that that actor had created those words in the first place by, you know, blurting them out in an improv, when. The, it was his or her turn
1: to speak. Sure. Okay.
0: So, uh, you know, I Howard Aspen and I had some very good material, and we got picked up pretty quick. Howard got to do KRP in Cincinnati. I did. Uh, I, did I did the movie Mash first for Altman, and then, uh, then I did. Oh, yeah.
1: Did you have? What did you one. do in, on Mash? I you was were in, a, in it. you yeah, in it, right?
0: I, I played Ugly John Black, the anesthesiologist.
1: All uh, right. So, uh, so anyway, so you were, uh, so you were on the Glen Campbell. Um, but what I'm trying to figure out, I guess, uh, getting at all this background, I want to know how you got so good doing what you do, and how you understand the craft so well. It's clear in your work that it's crafted.
0: Yes, I, I've always believed that the one of the highest. Uh, The highest praise you can give a guy in our business is they're a pro. You say that person's a pro. Now, what does pro mean? And I aspire to that. I want to be a pro. A professional is somebody who, on his worst day, will deliver usable, serviceable products on time, on demand. Mm-hmm. and you can say those words without fear of bombing too badly i mean if if i write if i if i write it down chances are it's, it'll work i mean sure. it just happens and a lot of that is due to you know years of improvising in front of an audience and gauging what audience is like i mean you do 12 13 shows a week 6 days a week in front and we had a we were lucky we had our own theater with 300 seats we were working in little 100-seat equity waiver theaters. We had a big theater, big audiences, and we got to work out every night, six nights a week. So you pick up a lot of stuff. And I've always been something of a technocrat when it comes to comedy, you know, parsing a joke and trying to figure out what's funny about that. Sure. Um, Which is why I love that wonderful scene in The Sunshine Boys, when Walter Matthaus says "chicken," is funny. K sound is. Funny. Oh yeah, the
1: whole yeah. That's a really great and the whole uh,
0: riff. What's yeah, funny. yeah.
1: And it,
0: it, it's written by Neil Simon, who knows what's funny. I mean. Oh was, yeah, was,
1: yeah. He funny. he was pretty good at knowing what was funny. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. So, uh, since I kind of prided myself on knowing what was funny and why, and why, I had this. I walked this fine line between improvising, in which you don't know what what you're going to say next you're dealing with the immediate presence you just you listen to what the other person says and you respond that's that's the only thing you don't write the scene in your head because the other actor isn't in your head right just respond immediately but by doing that night after night i got pretty good at responding in a way that i kind of intuited that the audience would appreciate when I knew when to go for a laugh line. I knew when to do a setup for the other actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was kind of a, a crucible. And I, I urge anybody who's going to be a comedy writer uh, to work, work in improv somewhere sometime and just get a handle on it. And it turns out that improvisation is to you know, the acting of the 21st century what the actor's studio was to actors in the 20th century. It's a whole sure. uh, a style of acting and performance and presentation uh, and almost all of our important actors uh, were improvisers at one time or another. You feel most likely from Second City or uh, the kids in the hall, the Canadian SCTV,
1: yeah, the, and, and, yeah, and the groundlings. Out. A lot of people out of the, of groundlings, yeah. the
0: groundlings. That was a, uh, a stage manager from the committee who went out and started his own theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, those were all kind of seminal training grounds uh, for everybody. Upright Citizens Brigade, Stephen Colbert came out of that. There's, uh,
2: there's now, a, having it, said I mean, that.
1: Having said that, here's, here's what I've noticed. Um, I think improv, I, I will go uh, on the record, always do uh, talk about the strengths of improv and what it will do for people and their, their work. But I also often see a downside. And I don't see it in your work. So this is what's interesting. So what I often see with people who start with improv is they're good with jokes, they're good with characters, they aren't so good with story. They have a hard, they're not so good with story. They often have a hard time um, thinking of story in terms of structure. Like they can, they can go to town on a character. They can, you know, you know what I mean? So, oh, some, absolutely. Uh, Well, story. First of all,
0: when you're working in a sketch format, you're lucky if what you're doing has a beginning, middle and end, uh, which happens. I mean, very often at, uh, you'll do an improvisation for the first time, and when the blackout comes, you realize, fuck, that was a, that was a <laughs> complete sketch. You know, that, yeah. was, that was six minutes of you know, near perfection. And it's really amazing because when, you, when you're doing it well, when everybody on stage is totally in the moment and responding, it's almost impossible to tell an improv from a scripted piece of material. It just seems so natural and real that the audience just completely goes along with it. And the fact that they know that you're making it up as you go along, you know, adds a dimension that's impossible to capture, you know, in media. You have to be in a live theater to feel that chemistry actually happening. Now You can see it, you know, in a, in a video on
1: YouTube. It's, but It's not the same. It's not the same.
0: No. And, and because I was a, a structured guy, uh, and I would, you know, kind of instinctively improvise with an, with an eye for beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, the end wouldn't come where I thought it did, but when the light man turned out the lights for a black guy and, and you realize, all right, that, that was that was the end. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lightman. Yeah. Because I had been a light man, so I knew how the lighting drove the performance. Um so I was always conscious of structure, mm-hmm. and
2: did, you, did did journalism
0: help with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I was uh, you know in journalism, like improv, is a craft, not a, not an art. Right. It it, it, it when practiced well, uh, it can rise to the level of art. I mean, as as. You know, a lot of great writers have, have shown us, but it's uh, uh, it's at, at worst a craft. You know, you have to you have to know what you're doing, <laughs> right? Uh, and and uh, the the more you know what you're doing, the more you're aware of of structure, and then you re- realize now. When I started teaching screenwriting. Uh, I had to go into my background and history and find all the uh, uh, all the tools and tricks that I used on my feet as an actor, and try to figure out how the, how those worked as a writer. Sure. Uh, what what was I doing right when I was improvising a story that I would that I could do uh, that I could do? on paper uh, without having to you know, say it out loud to see how it sounded. You know? Sure. Uh, although the, what's his name? Um, the guy who wrote The Brig, uh, gifted writer, uh, he, he would, uh, you know, he would shout the lines as he was writing them uh-huh. to, to give them that, that forcefulness that, the, that they needed for, for, that, for that particular play. Sure, uh, uh, and sometimes you' hard to separate performance style from writing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, uh, it, it and, you know, like everything else, when you're doing it all right, it looks easy and and <laughs> right. all falls into place. Right. Uh, because I had made a decision to only work in show business, very often I was unemployed, or I was working just for room and board, or meals, or you know, twenty five mm-hmm. bucks a week, and and all the food I can steal from the kitchen but uh, one it's like one job led to another you know I mean somebody saw me work and they say hey you 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 could do this and I go yes I can you know I, I fearlessly would go ahead and do it my I probably would have made many more billions of dollars if I had concentrated on one thing probably television I could have Probably, if I'd stayed, you know, exclusively in television, I probably could have created a show, and luck that show would have been a a hit, and then I'd be rolling in billions like the Seinfeld creators. But uh, my criteria for accepting a job was: have I ever done this before? And when the Fish movie came along, I was at that moment a story editor on The Odd Couple on ABC, working with Jack Klugman and Tony Randall.
1: Oh, okay. Was uh, was it? Uh, was is it Lowell Gans was on that show at the? Loll and Babalu had had
0: just come on the show. I was going okay. after they okay. were the new they were the new kids. Okay. And uh, I got this offer to go away and write a movie with my friend Stephen Gilbert. Mm-hmm. and I, I took it. And you know, because in those days, the action you know uh, movies were what everybody aspired to. That was the, the three network universe. Sure. Yeah. If you were in television, you were a schlepper. If you were an artiste, you, you were in feature films. And in sure. feature films, the director was God King. And in television, the showrunner was God King. Right. So the great thing about television was that the writers had a lot of authority. Sure. A couple of authority. Right? They would hire and fire directors. Directors Guild, to this day, is unhappy about that division. <laughs> right. of flavor, but that's yeah.
1: too bad. That's the way it is. Uh, well it makes sense television burns up so much material you need yeah. you know you know. it's like the directors are replaceable in that now,
0: as the three network universe fragmented and became what it is today the best writing being done today is being done in episodic television not, not in features uh, you know the, the best writers are writing uh, really good TV shows uh, whether it's you know uh, Ozark or Breaking Bad or you can't even watch
1: all the TV shows there are. Like, <laughs> there are a lot of TV shows, yeah. The,
0: the, yeah, it's, the stats are scary. There's a, like 400 scripted shows on television. So if you wanted to watch scripted television, you there's only 168 hours in a week. You, you can't see <laughs> everything. So you have to be a little selective. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I don't know how people see all the things. That they, there's so many things, and when you put in pod, <clears throat> podcasts and everything else, I don't know how people have time for this.
0: Well, with, with, with the social distancing, I've, I've taken to binge-watching some <laughs> some, of, some shows that I've discovered and, and go, oh, good, I can watch like four episodes of this in a row. Yeah. And in, 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 a, in, in a week, I'll be done with all four seasons or six <laughs> seasons. Yeah. You know,
1: that's funny. I watch old shows. So that's what I do. I watch The Fugitive or something. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so um, when you were learning about what a story was, what constituted a story, first of all, do you have a definition of what constitutes a story? You might not. Not everybody does. No,
0: a story is, um, well, it's, it's been quantified a number of different terms with the one, the one I like the best I forget and maybe it was Bill Goldman or somebody said And act one you get somebody up in a tree act two you shake the tree and act three you get them down again safely
1: right uh, you
0: know, and that's kind of Aristotelian western storytelling it's been sure. that way for a thousand years uh, so and, and one of the tricks of storytelling, one of the ways to learn storytelling is when you've developed a story. Let's say you're you're writing a spec script or a spec sketch or a spec show. One of the first steps after you've outlined it, and I'm a big believer in outlines, is you start to tell your friends. You start to tell, can you tell this story? Can you do the elevator pitch? Can Can you Hold your friend's attention for six minutes, and tell them a story. And if their eyes glaze over and they're looking away, (laughs) okay, that's that's not working. I got I got to polish that part. So you learn to tell the story first. It's like telling a joke, a a long form joke.
1: Sure. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, And once you you've perfected that, then you outline the whole thing and you start on act one, scene one, and keep writing till you hit the end
1: now i found when i was young uh much younger i couldn't um i couldn't do that what i found is when i told the story too much all the energy all the air left the balloon and i didn't want to write it anymore so i have to hold on to it uh because then it makes me write it so that i can tell it it's a it's uh I think both things work, but I tried that for a while. Like I'll tell the story and I'll work it and I'll hone it. And once I did that, I was done. I didn't. I
0: yeah. I, oh, well, that, that's where my experience coming from an oral tradition uh, was was ideal because you know telling a story was essentially like you know monopolizing the stage in an improv.
1: Sure. Right. Yeah.
0: You know, and and you know with the, with an the audience of one. But uh, but I had those I. Had, that skill that had developed in performance, which is very important for writers,
2: mm-hmm. uh, especially,
0: comedy, especially comedy writers, because, you know, the, 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 the writer's room was invaluable to me in my evolution as a writer.
1: I was, bet that's true, yeah. See, what was that like?
0: It was great. I mean, this, the first experience was the Smothers Show and Glenn Campbell. When all those, you know, Steve Martin and Lorenzo Music and me and Bob Rob mm-hmm. Reiner, we were all in the same room, yelling, you know, trying to top each other with jokes and trying to remember what we said that was funny. Right. And uh, uh, and that's been true since 1949 in your show of shows. Right. When when the the, the, the best writers room in the world. Yeah. London, you know, they, they did a play of laughter on the
1: 23rd. On floor, Neil Simon play. Yeah.
0: Which And he was there, and you know, and I, I, I've been friends with Mel Brooks for a long time. And, you know, he reminisces about those days and he was, he was a part of that. He was Mel Brooks and Woody Allen were the last two guys in the room. You know, yeah. They, uh, they came in late.
1: Yeah. Uh, that was a pretty serious writing staff that, yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't top that. I don't know if that's ever been topped, you yeah. know? Yeah. Just Neil Simon by himself. Yeah. is the best writer's room you could have. Right. <laughs> you know. You, you know. Then,
0: but then you, then you put, you know, Carl Reiner in, in that and, room. And,
1: and yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. Carl yeah. Reiner and then Mel Brooks and then, yeah. Um,
0: yeah like Danny Simon and Larry Gelbart and Selma Dunn. Aaron
1: Rubin. Aaron Rubin was in that room. Yeah.
0: Mel Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, just. Holy, yeah. Holy yeah, yeah. It's insane. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, that kind of set the bar and, you know, to this day, we are living with television that is descended from those early roots. If you look at the history of television, like in the very first television season, everything that's on the air today was there. There was, there was a family comedy, I Remember Mama, mm-hmm. and, and, and the Goldbergs.
1: Uh huh, right, yeah.
0: Two family sitcoms there was a talk show kind of like johnny carson but it was before even before steve allen uh jack parr i think
1: yeah did jack parr have another show before the tonight show
0: uh no, no I okay
1: think, so yeah so okay. there
0: was a tonight show i forget who it was okay the only thing that was on the air in 1950 that's not on the air anymore hardly is
1: westerns right oh Just and the, the live the live shows that one, oh, like and the, and the, live the, the well, or the live dramas like Beethoven and, most, and well, all those. drama.
0: That was the technology. As soon as they could film it, they did. I
1: mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: They wanted to do live drama. <laughs> that was the tradition from radio because they did it in radio, right? Yeah, and they managed to do it. You know, Yul Brynner was a director of live television.
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, I, I think he talked Sidney Pollock or was it Sidney it, Lumet? Uh, Sidney Lumet. Uh, t- I think Sidney Lumet. T- he right. talked into directing. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah.
0: So, so um, and again, because of the immediacy and the urgency and the, um, you know, inability to go back and edit, you know, everybody learned to do it right the first time. Yeah. And, and that was a skill that I had learned in college because I hated typing. I couldn't afford to pay people to type my papers for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I wrote a thesis, I typed it myself. And I used erasable bond so I could make small corrections. But when I went from outline to typing, I trained myself to type it, in what it, is it essentially the final draft. I never bothered with the first, second, and third draft.
1: I do the same thing, and people don't, they, they think that there's something, you know, but I do it because I have dyslexia. And so with dyslexia, what I learned how to do, since words were sort of my enemy, they sort of were a barrier between me and the storytelling, what I learned how to do was work it all out in my head and then I don't. I don't really write drafts either. Um, I just turned in two books, um, and uh, that's it. They just accepted them. I didn't have to no direct, you know, yeah. uh, because they. I have to have it right before I put it down. So I understand that as a as a strategy and a technique. But yeah. people find it hard to believe.
0: <laughs> well, you know, they. they it is. Uh, it's it's possible to do. You know. As we prove in improv, it's possible to do art on demand uh, with some quality if you have the background and training and, and can restrain your ego right. and, and submit to the demands of the project, the moment, the scene, the, whatever it is that you're writing is more important than you writing.
1: That's okay. That's, that's an amazing, let's talk about that for a second, because I I would say that's one of the hardest things to, to teach someone. Um, there are a few things that are hard and that's one of them that, that they want to make, they want to make it about themselves. This is about me showing off. This is about how clever I am or how smart I am or whatever. Um, and they don't surrender to the material or to what the story needs or to the character they're writing. Um, do, do you think improv gave you that? Because improv oh, yeah. requires I, you. Yeah, I, improv.
0: Well, the, the basic nature of improv is agreement. Yes, because there's a there's a, a canard that's uh, circulated about you know con, you know drama is conflict. Well, that may be, but drama is much better if it's agreement.
2: Between
0: right. <laughs> yeah, right. parties. If everybody is, is agreed on what the objectives are, and you know, who the characters are and how they're going to behave, if people, you know, keep that in mind, uh, then they're successful. It's interesting. Some of the people who came out of Second City, I won't say they came out of Second City. They did time in Second City. Okay. All right. John Rivers. All right. Yeah, you know, and, and there's, there's
1: been a few others now, the, who were never, I, the, cut, never cut out
0: for that kind of cooperative endeavor.
1: Yeah, so what I, what I, this is the way I heard the story, that uh, Dale Close was in a scene with Joan Rivers, and in the scene, um, he, they were getting a divorce. They were a couple getting a divorce. And then he said, what about the children? And now, of course, her job is to take that in and, you know, add to it, but what she did is say, "We don't have any children."
0: Yeah, denial. So always good for a quick, cheap laugh, and it right. totally fucks up the scene for the reason. yeah. You can't, you can't proceed on that basis.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so that's what yeah, I heard. Then she was up. kicked that's out. That's
0: not a gun; that's your finger. Oh, come on, you know. Yeah.
1: Please. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cheap yeah. laugh, but denies the reality.
1: Yeah. So that. Yeah, that's what I heard. And was uh, wasn't uh, Ed Asner in Second City? Yes, but, but he was a good player. You know, he, yeah. he played the game. You know, he, he, yeah, yeah.
0: He cooperated.
1: Sure. Well, he, it seems like he would. He, he seems... to see
0: it in his work, obviously. To this oh, game. yeah, you
1: can see it. You can see it.
0: I mean, everybody who trained in improv is, if they were any kind of improviser, they didn't have to be a genius. They just had to be good. Right. Whether it's you know, Amy Poehler or Amy Schumer or uh, just, you know, Stephen Colbert I mean pick modern comics who, who have served time in the improvisational trenches and they all know about agreement they're not going to you know deny your reality they're not going to take a scene in an odd direction uh, unless it's absolutely necessary and if and the moment has to be organic to what's going on on stage you have to be aware of what the reality is the most important instruction you give somebody is deal with what is. Right. Not what you'd like it to be, not where you think it should go, not what you already figured out in your head would be really funny if you said it. Right. You know, right. Just, right. Just go with what you got. Yeah. And trust trust the process. That's what it comes down to. Trust the process.
1: Well you you talked about being a team player and that's I think part of it, right? The the process um, is all about the team. We are doing this, not yeah. you. Not your funny line. We are doing this. Yep. Um, and I think that when you're in an improv scene, when it's working, um, it is completely about surrender and about helping the other person and about, you know, everybody's helping each other and that's what rises it up. And you could not come up with that sketch on your own. You could not, you know, there's no way that either person could come up with that. You know, I was talking to somebody about Frasier and how well it was written and how funny it was. And I said, the, the thing is, no single person is that funny, right? It's a room full of people, right? You know, but no single person is that funny.
0: Right, and it's their interaction and the situations in which they find themselves as a result of choices they make as, as people, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to hide the stain in the carpet. I'm going to not tell her that I spent the money on her dress somewhere else. I mean, <clears throat> that's why they call it situation comedy
1: because right. it depends on the situation. Sure. So, okay, so when you were – so, let's see, you did – Jaws was before you did New Heart, or were you on New Heart? Above? I was on New – I left New Heart to do Jaws. You left Bob New Heart to do Jaws. All right. Um, and you did not return to New Heart. You were just gone, right? I was After gone,
0: that, but when I got back from Jaws, I still had to earn a living. Sure. So I did a show called uh, a Music Scene on mm-hmm. a and then I did four Flip Wilson specials. Okay. Where I met Richard Pryor. Okay. And then I got hired to do a Richard Pryor movie. Uh, and that was one of his better movies. So <laughs> I, while the fish movie was in the can, I did four Flip Wilson specials and a Richard Pryor. And I, I laid the groundwork for working with Richard. And a year or two later, after Jaws came out, my next produced movie was Which Way Is Up. Okay, sure. which reestablished my comedy cred, because Jaws, you know, everybody had me tagged as a horror writer. Right, yeah. But then I did the prior movie, I said, oh he, oh, he can do comedy. Yes, I can do comedy, yes. And then I did The Jerk, which was, you know... Oh, sure. Iconic film number two, so now
1: my Jeopardy! category would be his hits begin with a J. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... Um, I'm curious, I'm always curious about um, what people learn from other craftspeople. What specifically, did you learn anything in the writer's room on the Bob Newhart Show, for instance, that stuck with you? Or did you learn anything? What is it that you took from other people that you, that you use in your work now?
0: Um, the lesson that a joke has to be kind of organic to the situation that's occurring, you know, it has to be, it has to be something that the character would say at that moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> and your your job as a writer is to... Well, it's, it's the two hardest parts of creative writing, especially for, for performance. <clears throat> this is a, a life lesson. The two hardest things are exposition and dialogue. The mm-hmm. exposition, how do you let the audience know what has happened before and who these people are without resorting to all the cheap tricks like the 8 by 10 glossies of the team and the guy says, this is your dynamite guy, this is your thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's tiresome exposition. <clears throat> I used to point to uh, the movie called Guns of Navarone. Uh-huh. In the first two minutes as the best and the worst exposition in movies. The the worst exposition is uh, Gregory Peck arrives at an airfield in the midst of a combat situation and he goes into a meeting with an officer, why am I picked for this mission? And the guy commits the cardinal sin of exposition, which is telling one character what that character already already knows. Yeah. 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 You speak Greek like a Greek. You speak German like a German. You've been behind the enemy
2: line. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Some clumsy would. Then, mo- a few minutes later, Gregory Peck is alone in a hotel room uh, reading a newspaper. And there's a knock on the door. He takes out an enormous gun and hides it behind the newspaper and says, come in. And it's Anthony Quinn. And Gregory Peck said, "I didn't, I didn't think it would be you." And now you understand a whole lot about these two guys. Sure, they have a history, and they shit right. together. And nobody has said we worked together. We fought the Germans. You, you. Yeah. They, they just, just had one moment with the gun, and they realized, okay, now we have to talk about what the mission is. And then they get into it. So it's like, and it, yeah. In Jaws, I'm very proud of the exposition in the first scene, first dialogue scene, which is way, you know, uh, Roy Scheider waking up in the morning. Yeah. <coughs> You've just seen the girl get killed. Right. And it's now it's daylight breaks. You hear a radio voice with a pronounced new England accent done by Harry Shearer, by the way. Oh, was it? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, Talking about July, July Fourth. Yeah, and 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 uh, Scheider says to uh, uh, Lorraine Gary, his wife. He says, "How come the sun didn't used to shine in here like this?" And she says, "We because we bought the house when we looked at the house. It was September, and now it's July. Right. So now you know. You know, yeah. You know a lot about these people, and you've never said anything." This, and then the phone rings and when they're down in the kitchen and he picks up one phone and gets a dial tone, he picks up another phone. You go, to to "Well, what kind of person has two, phone, two phones in his house? Because this looks like a kind of normal suburban breakfast with a kid and a dog, but he's got two phones. And then he says, well, what do they do? Do they wash up or what? And he says, I got to go. And she says, wait chief. And then you realize he's got a shirt with a badge on it. He puts the shirt on. Yeah. And he gets into a police car. You go, Oh fuck. He's a cop. Right. You know, and then all this stuff unfolds.
1: There's some great stuff in there. I actually like the stuff with the accent too. And, and Amity, you say, Yod, right. Yeah. That's yeah. all that stuff, right. Yeah,
0: all that stuff. Pinson is an outsider.
1: The it's, island, it's, you know, all. no, that's beautifully done. you said beautiful the
0: whole movie in that one scene. Uh, and you're doing a little foreshadowing because the kid cuts himself, he's prepared, mm-hmm. you know. his blood. And a lot of that is ad lib and has a real feeling of immediacy to it. Spielberg is a genius at that, at taking amateur and kid actors and making it seem real. My job was to stitch it all together seamlessly with words that uh,
1: that made sense. Well, it, it totally made sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... I, um, I- I don't know if you know Robert Benton personally, but I got to meet him once, and and uh, I'm a big fan of Robert Benton's work. And oh, one of the things, okay, yeah, true. and one of the things I love about, and this is what I got to tell him, is the things he doesn't write are beautiful, and I and kn- you know what I mean by that, yeah. Um, and there's a scene in Places in the Heart where Sally Field's husband has been killed; he's been shot, and she's uh, cleaning him for the funeral so she's with her sister and they're sort of washing him down it's the depression there's no money to go to an undertaker and all that stuff so they're washing him um and they were having dinner a little while ago on this table just before he's killed and now she's got to clean his body this is the 30s in texas and she's just washing and they're quiet and she says and i don't know exactly the line but basically she says uh you know we had this many children together we did this we did that and then she says I never knew he had that scar right there. I never knew that. Hmm. And I thought, what a beautiful way to say there was still so much to learn about each other, that there yep. was still, that it was just, you know, it's hard to write like that, right? It looks like nothing, but it's hard to write like that. Oh, the, uh, the
0: late Show with Lily Tomlin and Bill mm-hmm. Mason. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a, a wonderfully crafted private eye story. Art Carney is brilliant in it. Our uh,
1: it's, it's, Carney's brilliant in everything. But
0: <laughs> I was I was once thinking of doing a uh, writing a biography of one of my favorite actors, who was Thomas Mitchell.
1: Oh, I love Tom! He's one of my favorite actors too. He's one of the best actors I think in, in yep. old Hollywood.
0: And I, yeah. I, my title, my working title was, I never saw him bad.
1: Yeah, he was never bad. For people who don't know, he's uh, Uncle Billy in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, but he's done yeah. a, lo- he did a yeah. lot of things.
0: And, and, uh, and uh, Katie Scarlett O'Hara's father.
1: Yeah. The land, yeah. Katie Scarlett, the land. <laughs> he did so many great things. Yeah. He's really good in um, Tales of Manhattan.
0: Tales of Manhattan, Swiss Family Robinson. I mean, yeah. 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 The guy was a genius. You know. He really
1: was. He really was. <laughs> yeah. You should write a book about him. More people need to know about that guy. He was amazing. Yeah. So natural. Yep. You know? Yeah, he was really good. Um, so, okay, so you learned. Uh, what do we say you learned here? I, should pay, I really should pay attention when I'm talking to people. Well,
0: so, um, <laughs> what did we say? We learned <laughs> an exposition and, and dialogue. the other. Right. The, the two, oh, yeah. Part, it was two parts. Part one is exposition. Yes. Which is really technically demanding to get it right. Yes. And the other part is dialogue, which is a little uh, it's more demanding. Mm hmm. Because you have to write, you have to put words in people's mouth that sound as if they would say them. Right. You have to be true to the character, you have to be true to the the moment in the scene. Yeah. And there can't be any wasted words. Yeah. If you listen to people talk, if you tape record people all the time, as many people do, You'll find that you know real conversation is elliptical and repetitive and people you know go back on themselves and, and you know, it's very hard. It's hard if you wrote if you transcribed it and called a dialogue, it would be clumsy and awful and you right. and you wouldn't understand it. The trick to dialogue is making it sound like the actor is saying it for the first time and the genius of actors, this is why we have to love actors is that they can take a line of dialogue and they can say it in a way that even when you wrote it, you never heard in your
1: head. Mm-hmm. You, you, you it's know, completely you, true. Yeah. Actor,
0: I know. When they're in, when they're in character and doing their job, they will read your dialogue and you'll say, holy shit, I never even saw that there. And, and the actor found that moment, you know? Yeah. And they and good actors are constantly surprising you when they read.
1: Yeah, when they when they do their work, when they when they figure out what's really going on underneath, and the stuff they find is amazing. They yeah. they generally will know your characters better than you do. I find. Oh,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're thinking of the character in a larger context and how do they serve the plot? And, you know, how important are they? I used to tell writing students very often you'll come to a scene where there's you know, cop one and cop two, right? Yeah. In a scene. <clears throat> I said, if you cover up who's speaking, you can't tell. Right. Just make it one cop. Because right. One, unless one cop is an authoritarian prick and the other one is willing to cut some slack and is more sympathetic, then you have something you can work with. Sure. One guy's dialogue is short and punchy. And the other guy is a little more, sympathetic or uses please and thank you and now you've got two human beings on the screen instead of two uniforms talking
1: you know the the person i when i look at their work who i think does that better than almost anybody is billy wilder if somebody walks on the screen on the screen ial diamond well okay all right Okay. okay sure sure okay well the two of them Legit- yes. <laughs> right, right, That, that team <laughs> That team But it was true when he wasn't working with Diamond It was true when he was working with Charles Brackett It was true, yeah. you know So it was true with these other writers as well So e- e- even if they did write them I think Billy Wilder had a way of bringing it out
0: Yep
1: And, and saying that these people who walk on the screen Have to be fully realized human beings Exactly Um, it's amazing to watch because I think that if you're not a practitioner, if you don't understand the craft, you don't understand what just happened, that those two characters that walked in that had almost nothing to do were fully realized human beings. And that's hard to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of of the things that I was cursed with when I was an actor, because I was never a, a featured player. I was always a day player. Sure. I would look at my dialogue and I realized, Oh, shit. I am what is called Irving the Explainer.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tom Scare calls it Harvey the Explainer. Yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You're the guy who in the medical scene has to give the autopsy information. You have to sound like you know what you're talking about. Right. But at the same time, there's no personal emotion. I mean, you can you can yeah. choose to play it tired or... right. You can find yeah. As an actor, you've got to find something rather than just reciting the facts. But it's a thankless job. Yeah. Uh, when you're doing it, because you know, there's, there's the writer hasn't given you any emotion. To, right. Uh, to to work with. So and then, then and again, the good actors will take a dry recitation of the facts, playing cop one or, you know. Um, coroner or medical examiner, or chief of detectives, or superintendent of the building who tells you the guy has only come in and out three times—all you know—that kind of information. Uh, you've got to figure out a way to make it interesting.
1: I had a uh, a directing teacher, Judith Weston, who uh, who has this rule about when you're directing. She says, uh, "Well, sometimes if some if an actor is stuck." you might give them the direction do it wrong yeah do it wrong and what's what's interesting is it may not be right but it unlocks things yeah right? it unlocks things it's like oh i don't have to be serious about this at all what if it's a big joke to me or whatever yeah. um and it, it it brings it to life it was a really nice uh thing that, i took that's from
0: her good. that's a good acting
2: note yeah
1: yeah yeah she's a really uh excellent teacher um the only directing teacher i ever had but i, I don't I don't think I need any more. She's she was she was amazing. Uh, but um, so um, oh, what was I going to say? Something you said reminded me of something. Oh, dialogue. There's some really great in Norma Ray, which is one of my favorite movies, Norma yep. Ray. And and there's a scene in there near the beginning. It's in the first act. And she uh, she meets Ruben, who is the uh, the guy who comes to town to their little Southern town, New Jewish York, guy, New, 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 New York. Jewish York Jewish guy. New, yeah. Right. And, um, she, uh, she's, she's, uh, in a hotel room with a guy and the guy s- hits her. And so she stumbles out of the hotel room and her nose is bleeding. And Ruben, the character from New York comes, calls her in and gives her ice. And she's got the ice on her, on her nose. And she's looking at him and she says, you a Jew? And he said, what? You a Jew? And and uh, he goes, yeah. And he explains he that he is. And she says, well, you don't look any different. And he said, we are. And she says, well, what makes you different? And he says, history, which is great. But then later, now this is a woman who who did had never seen a Jewish person before. Right. Yep. Later in the piece, um, she, uh, they're talking, he, she borrows a book from him. She doesn't read at the beginning of the piece. So you, you know, she notices also that he has a lot of books later when they're working together, she wants to borrow one of his books and they're eating bananas and beer. That's their dinner as they work on this union stuff. And, um, so she borrows the book and she's walking out and, um, and he says that, and don't get banana on my book. And she says, kvetch, kvetch, kvetch. And it was like, that is the greatest, that tells you how much she's being influenced by him uh, without saying she's being influenced by him. Sure. Uh, she goes from not ever meeting a Jewish person to speaking Yiddish. Like, it's so, it's amazing. Yep. And it's, it, it, most people don't see it, but it's beautiful work. That That's so well written, that piece. Yeah.
0: Norma Ray. Who, who wrote Norma Ray? Who was uh, The
1: Ravitch. Uh, the the er, Rav- Ravitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Harriet. good old, the, good
0: old New York comedy progressives.
1: Yeah, they, Yeah.
0: Harriet Frank. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There you go. They were. They were. They were. Uh, they were great. And that. That. Most of is, the people who
0: learned the craft on Philco Playhouse and Craft Theater, Craft Playhouse, like, they learned their craft in live television.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where you uh, know, they write the first time. Yeah. My, uh, uh, I was good friends with Stuart Stern who wrote Rebel Without a Cause and he wrote live television too. He wrote, uh, he did, um, Heart of Darkness for, yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, that's where he met Roddy McDowell's in that. And, uh, they were like lifelong friends after that. But, um, uh, anyway, that's another, that's another thing we can talk about that another time. Mr. Cuts, <laughs> he dead. Yeah. <laughs> <Heart of darkness. laughs> um, so uh, oh, and there was something else you said that um, uh, I, I talked about it on another show. Maybe I've talked about it more than once because I think the Andy Griffith show was a really unbelievably well written show. And one of the things that Andy had a rule on that show, and that was if a joke makes a liar out of the character, lose the joke. Which I think is an unbelievable rule especially in a sitcom like you know they're in for the for the laughs but if you watch that show not every scene is a laugh scene not everything has to have laughs in it that was true on bob newhart as well like there would be scenes that didn't have laughs in them uh or you would find laughs i think in the truth yeah you know Those Uh, those, those are the best laughs those are the best laughs yeah the, just that, that oh, that is the way people respond. That is the way people react. And you're, you're kind of seeing it for the first time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like somebody's pointing at it and going, isn't that funny how people do this? Or isn't it funny how people do that? Um, did you is that something you learned in improv? Is that something? Um, like, were there rules on that show about how to write that show? Or uh, did, was Bob really the... Right? Well, no, there, there was a... Uh there was a
0: performance style um, and a writing style that was de- developed over time. And as part of it was the three camera technique. Sure. Part of it was the fact that all the guys came out of the Norman Lear school of comedy writing, uh, tandem productions. A lot of those guys got started back then. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, Uh. and, and, uh, and Jim Brooks w- was uh, uh, very serious about structure. I mean uh, he, he was a bear on structure. was he really uh, that's well,
1: clear that's clear on his shows and in his movies. I'm just uh, I, I hadn't heard that, so
0: Oh yeah we, 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 you know the actor's cliche, all my character would say that. Yeah. And then you, you point to the script and say, excuse me, it says your character's name, and it says it's a lot of dialogue. So your character would say that. <laughs> it says so right here. Your job as an actor is to make it real, not, not to question, you know. Now, if it's, if it's a, a clumsy line of dialogue or it's heavy-handed exposition or it's, you know, the emphasis of in the wrong place or it's offensive, I mean, there's a lot of ways dialogue sure. can go south you know an actor can spot that because they go I, I don't know how to make this work for my character and like I say you know when when actors do their job they can somehow make almost anything work yeah but I discovered this is a very interesting thing I've been a producer and a director so I've done a lot of casting and you, you know you pick a scene for actors to read and you see a variety of different actors reading the same scene. right? And if you notice that they bobble a line of dialogue, there's a line that everybody you know, has a moment where they get it wrong. If like eight actors bobble the same line of dialogue, <sighs> you got to go, whoa, there's something wrong with the yeah. word. Right there yeah. fix that. There's no right. reason eight actors would bobble yep. that line or mispronounce it because... You just have it's just not right. fixing. Mm-hmm. and and uh, you can you can tell that sometimes by mistakes people make by by the difficulty people have. If you're doing it right, dialogue flows. If you're not doing it right, it's it seems forced, and Yeah. people are not responding to what the other actor has said.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and your job as a writer is to make it flow. Like, sure. Uh, which is why I said dialogue is so hard to write because you have to be true. You have to write it in a way that the actor can speak it and be believable. You have to use the vocabulary that the character would use, not your own vocabulary. Right. You have to, you have to use the grammar and structure that the character would use. And a New Yorker is different from a Southerner. A right. Listener, Eng- English is a second language. You know, everybody speaks English differently right and you have to be attuned to that so that you're writing dialogue that is appropriate to your character if your character is a you know a first or second generation american from new york city whose parents are from eastern europe he's going to have one style of speech that is completely different from norma race who's right a southern who's never seen a jew before and and uh, you know doesn't have the ethnic and society societal and, and environmental clues that she would have if she were living in New York, she's living in the South.
1: Right. So
0: she's this guy is speaking almost a foreign language and Yiddish is a foreign language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's um, I know that in radio, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I know in the radio days because of the way the scripts are written with the, the character on the left and then the dialogue on the right, they would often fold the paper in half and they would read the dialogue and see if they knew who was talking without looking at the names. And if they could do that, they knew it was well-written. Otherwise they were like, well, this is crap. This go fix this. (laughs) I don't know who's talking.
0: Yeah. Send it back.
1: Yeah. Um, So was uh, so on Jaws, um, was there anything, did the improv help you since they were, so many delays on Jaws because the shark famously wasn't working and you, you guys, you had to shoot anyway, right? <laughs> right, right? right, Um, was there anything that came out of that, uh, out of that time when the shark wasn't working, uh, that you think makes the movie better, uh, oh, in yeah, terms no. of the writing?
0: Well, and the part of it is Spielberg's direct Spielberg uh, clearly is a genius. Yes. Yeah, so- uh, and, Although he knew he was making a popcorn movie that had to be popular, mm-hmm. he deliberately cast, with the help of Shari Rose, who was a great casting director, um, there was a lot of locals, there were very few professional actors in, in that movie, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of local people. And he, and he managed to get them to sound like they were. Yeah, so, you know, I used to, sometimes I would wince uh, on the first office scene with Polly. Mm-hmm. Oh, actor, yeah. Yeah, plays Polly, is clearly not a professional actor. I mean, she's, she's <laughs> uh, with a, with, if it was painting, it would be called American Primitive or Naive. <laughs>
2: art.
0: Uh-huh. Sure. But she's doing her line. She's doing the job. She's delivering the lines. Yeah. You get the information. Yeah. And she's she's real. Yeah. And that counts for a lot. If somebody appears real, they can say the most outrageous things or lies they're just, you know,
1: Yeah. Well, she has a line there where she's talking about the, the kids karate the fences. Yeah, yeah. And there's something about, she does this gesture. Yeah. And there's something about how she does it that makes me think that it's very real. There's something, she has a picture in her head of what's happening.
0: Yeah, she's trying to communicate to him Yeah, what the complaint is.
1: Y- yeah, and she isn't and just saying the words, right? That gesture makes all the difference, and it's exactly. really interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's came out of her, I don't know, but... It Probably came
0: out of the moment, and yeah, it's interesting. The one, the one of the trained actresses of uh, Mrs. Kintner, uh, oh, right, Lee Fierro, um, rejected her speech as it was in this the draft before mine because there were too many f words and she didn't want to say them. Mm. So, I'm not going to say that this dialogue. So, I wrote new dialogue for her, which she memorized and delivered
1: right on, yeah. The way. Now, doesn't she work at a children's theater there in town or something?
0: Yeah, she, she ran a community theater. She was an actress for decades. So, she just died a few, a few yeah, months she ago. she just died, yeah. And, in know, COVID-19, and she had gone back to Ohio or someplace. But she she's spent most of her life on the vineyard doing little community theater there. Huh. She, was, she was great.
1: She was amazing, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: yeah. She's an important part of that movie. Like, oh, she's, Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, she did an amazing job.
0: And and then they, they uh, uh, there's this this kind of fat, almost gay reading of uh, it's not a tiger. Shit the tiger, yeah. You that, go, ah, a what a what? Yeah, it's a kind of effeminate. There's a big guy saying you don't know, and yet it's totally real. Yeah. And I'm in that scene trying. I'm improvising that scene trying to get them to line up for the photograph. Mm-hmm. The eyes of people in shark. So I'm talking a mile a minute and uh, the locals are just you know being kind of laid back cuz you know, they don't want to take liberties with the dialogue. Right, yeah. And uh, but it comes it works to everybody's advantage.
1: Yeah. Well clearly it all works. Everybody Jaws yeah. wo- everybody knows Jaws works. It's yeah. like, like clearly clearly it all came together. I was just curious about how your improv um, had an impact, uh, your, your background in improv had an impact on the writing since uh, there were so many delays on the shoot?
0: Well, I, I was writing, the beauty of my training was that, and I, I, you know, we start, I came on the picture like 17 days before principal photography. Okay. Not a good way to write a movie. <laughs> no. But I was writing for actors who I could see and hear I wasn't mm-hmm. writing an abstract character. I was writing for Roy Scheider, for Richard okay. for Lorraine Gary, for Craig Kingsbury, who actually spoke a lot like Quint. Okay, uh, he was a local character, famous, huh. famous drunk. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And, and uh, if you if you can hear the people speaking in real life, you know, pass the coffee, or what time what time is the call, or you know. I hate this car, whatever, you know, whatever they're talking about, you are able, as a, as a writer of dialogue, to have them in your head when you create speech for them. Sure. Because you're writing for voices you can hear. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, a lot of times when you're writing fiction, uh, you don't know who the actor is going to be and how they're going to work. So you write the, the dialogue as well as you can and then trust that the actor will surprise you When they get a hold of it, sure they do. Writers have to love actors who can take our words and make them sound like they just thought of it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what actors do. They they speak a line of dialogue that they memorized and looked at and made notes, and it sounds like, oh, he said that. I'm going to just say this.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing when they do it well. It's amazing when you know you've written it and you know what they're going to say and it still sounds brand new. Like, you know, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I, I had an actor like that. I directed this thing and this actor was so good. Like it was like I'd never heard it before. Yeah, There were lines I'd written. I knew what he was going to say, but it was as if it was brand new. Yep, It was an amazing thing. That's
0: that's that's why you know movies are such a great collaborative art because you know everybody brings something to the party, and uh, I used to uh, point out that there's two kinds of uh, creative people in collaborative enterprises, especially film. They're the artists of original creation, mm-hmm. and that's the screenwriter and the composer. Mm-hmm. And then there are the artists of interpretation. Yeah. Which is the director and the actors. Yeah. And uh, you have to keep in mind that there's, there's kind of two different arts and two different sets of rules for, for that art. And, and, and uh, I have this quote, where is it, know, on my wall? Oh, yeah, this is... Uh, There are two categories of artists, the artists of absolute creation and those who create upon the creation of others. Our job, he's talking talk about writers, is to understand what those great, these great absolute artists have created and communicate that to a public. The greatest director of Don Giovanni will never be the equal of Mozart. There's a diabolical danger in the craft of interpretation to believe that we are as capable or even better than Mozart or Shakespeare.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: You know.
1: Yeah. And, and, curi- yet.
0: and curiously enough, the greatest writers of drama in, in, our, in our language are writers who wrote for a company of actors. Shakespeare mm-hmm. wrote for Richard Burbage and some other actors. Right. Ollier wrote for the Comedy Francaise. Eugene O'Neill wrote for the Provincetown Players. Uh, David Mamet wrote for his, the, his oh right theater yeah. Theater. yeah 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 uh, you know, really good writers have a company in mind that they're writing for they have actors who they hear in their heads sure writing the characters and those actors get if they're lucky get to play the characters that the writer has created using their personas as as archetypes
1: sure sure and so and you were you were well versed in that studied in that so when you came on Jaws you had been writing in the voices of other characters and you had been on the new heart show and you'd been watching, you know, you've been doing that that there. That's
0: that's the great trading of writing uh, sitcom television is the characters are finished. for by the, by the end of the first season, they all, you know, you're not going to find anything new in the character of Archie Bunker or Bob right. Right. You know, pick a hero, right. You, You know, you know, the character work is all done. Your job is to make it plausible And consistent with the new story that you created, which is original. Uh, But the character work has been done. It's your job to understand it and not go against type unless it's really for some artistic purpose that that can't be achieved any other way. Sure. Part of being a professional. Yeah, I think it is. You know the difference. You know when when you can be original and break, you know, break the rules and break, you know, work outside the box. And other times when you best serve the piece by paying attention to the rules, you know, writing the character that exists and being consistent with, you know, five seasons that have come before. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, see, you don't stray. Uh, That was the beauty of, of, one of the beauties of the Odd Couple is the lead characters are so clearly defined and so right. perfectly uh, in uh, in opposition, and, but in harmony, oh, yeah. right? Harmonic opposition, I guess you would call it. Yeah. So you, you know, you, you have that going for you as a as a writer on the series. You have that going. A lot of the you know the, a lot of the heavy lifting has been done
1: by yeah those who came before. Sure. That makes sense. So I, I have a, a couple more questions and then I'll sure. let you get on with your life. So, so, um, uh, one is, um, uh, uh, you mentioned teaching and, and, uh, I've done a lot of teaching. And so I'm curious, I see certain patterns, um, in students, um, and they change over time a little bit. Um, but I see certain patterns in students, the people who want to be different. I always say the people who want to be different. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to be different. They all want to be different in exactly the same way, you know? <laughs> so they think they're being unique. Like, I'm not going to have a happy ending, and I'm not going to do this. And I'm gonna, it's all the same set of rules. So they're following another template. They don't think they are but they are. Um, but one of the things I see is this inability to, again, to uh, put their ego aside and surrender to the material. Are there other things that you've seen, other traps that students fall into, or other things that are hard to, uh, to teach a student that they just can't get?
0: Yeah, one, one of the reasons I stopped teaching was I, I, I had to read so many bad scripts. Sure. And it wasn't the kid's fault. I mean, they were doing the best they could under sure classes. But you were, you were so grateful when a good student with an original voice came along Mm-hmm. Even if their script was flawed, you'd go, well, yeah, it's flawed, but it's
1: flawed in a really good way' you know? right, yeah, I know what you mean
0: um, but for example uh, I discovered in almost every script that I read when I was at u s c for example, no matter how what the framework was or what the location, whether it was a you know a shipyard or a family auto car business or uh, domestic drama. How the protagonist was always a misunderstood
2: twenty-something. <laughs> right, right, right,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, no matter what disguise they put him in, they 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 were they were just unconsciously writing what they knew, which was yeah. not much. Right. They, they didn't have much real world experience. Right. So, if they had real world experience, they weren't bringing it to the work. Right. I I, I told I used to tell my students. I said, if you possibly can get a job that gets you inside people's houses, I don't care if it's cable TV installer or a plumber or a handyman or a de- delivery boy, get inside people's houses and see how they live, and you'll never write a cliché interior again because right. when you see how people live uh, – you realize, wow, you know, the, every everybody's a little quirky, and 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 then, of course, depressingly, if you watch a show like Cops, which is probably the only reality television on television, because everything else, and I noticed this twenty years ago, and now it's just rampant. Everybody in reality television talks like everybody else in reality television.
1: Right? Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Real Housewives are not—they're not, they're not being real. They're sounding like the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills are saying what the Real Housewives of Atlanta would say because they saw them on television. They weren't sure. Like that. Yeah. So they, they adapt these personas and they're imitating. They're imitating behavior. And the thing about cops is that it's truly spontaneous. I mean, people right. are being arrested. When <laughs> right. you go into somebody's house, you get to see people, most people don't have books in their house. Right. You see, you know, you see a... The velvet painting of Jesus on the wall, and you go, oh, you know, that's that's consistent with the character, right? You know, and, and uh, uh, the way people's kitchens are is very rarely, unless it's a really good movie set decorator, art art department. You know, movie sets do not look like what people where people live.
1: Oh no, they don't. Yeah,
0: a great art director and a good movie.
1: It's amazing.
0: Exactly what they, yeah. people. Yeah. As a one of you, what are the tests of, of uh, how actors learn their characters, basically, you can ask a character, um, "Here's the you're, 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 here's the prop man. He's going to give you the props. What does your character have in his pockets?" Mm-hmm. And the guy who has to has to stop and think. Is it keys? You know, a wallet. Uh, notebook. I said, really? A notebook? Is, he, is your character is this a character who actually writes things down or is it somebody not? And the guy said, oh, that's right. I wouldn't have a notebook, would I? I said, right. Prop man? No little notebook in this guy. <laughs> You have to write something, he'll tear off a scrap of paper from, the, from out sure. of the magazine, you know. So, reality dictates behavior mm-hmm. uh, or in our case, the semblance of reality, to make it look real, we have to make it look un- unstudied.
1: Yeah, when it's often very, very studied. But <laughs> but what, yeah, what I find is often, it's exactly, I see this a lot. Um, I see it with illustrators I've worked with, and in fact, I have a friend who's an illustrator at, um, uh, for Pixar. And when he was young, um, he he grew up in an army base. His dad was in the army, and, and he was always drawing. And he met a guy in the army uh, who was in the army, who was older, who said to my friend, you're drawing from comic books. Stop doing that. Start drawing from life. And it was like, he goes, that's what happened to me. That's why I'm stuck in the army and not a comic book artist, because I was drawing from comics. And a lot of the times I'll be watching television or, or movie. And I, and I think this person, whoever wrote this, does not look at people they look at movies. They've learned how to write from looking at television or movies, yep. not from looking at people. Right. Um, yeah, not from drawing from life. That's, and you can feel the difference. Absolutely. You can feel the, it. Uh, the, the,
0: uh, uh, the illusion of verisimilitude is it, hard to achieve. Um, I, I just thought of the other clumsy exposition. This, this is a shortcut that everybody uses, I've been guilty of it myself when I'm trying to get through something in a hurry, character wakes up and the camera pans around the room and you see the family picture, you see the guy in his uniform, you see a picture of his wife and daughter, you see a picture of, uh, you know, from work. And by panning around the room and showing the photographs, You're doing a quick thumbnail sketch of who this guy is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lucky for you, the writer, that this character put up all these pictures from his past. (laughs) Yeah, that's the other that's the other clumsy exposition technique.
1: You know, it's funny you mentioned that character uh, getting up. It's one of my pet peeves. Most of the time, it doesn't do any good. Most of the time, I can assume people got up in the morning. So most of the time, you're not getting any information. And when I read a script and it starts, you know, character waking up, I'm like, oh, they just started at the beginning. They didn't start someplace. Yeah. Now, there are reasons to start with a character getting up, but you better have a good reason for it.
0: Yeah, most, right? most, good, most good scenes start in the middle and end before they're over.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. We, but, but there's no information in a person getting up in the morning. If it's a normal day, right. 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 (laughs) It's like, you haven't told me anything. So the movie hasn't started yet. You know? Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a trap. And I, I always saw that. And I saw it with a lot of independent films. And, and then I heard that at Sundance, if they read a script, if you submit a script to them and it starts with a character getting up in the morning, they, they throw the script out (laughs) because it's such a cliche. Yeah. 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 If you know, the, if the
0: writer is taking the easy way from page one, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, you know, uh, I, I've never been a reader, but I've, I've read a lot of scripts as a producer. I've read a lot, read a lot of submissions. And, and I, I actually know, I, I take it back, I was a reader on, for Broadway. And the scripts I hated reading were the ones that were passably good. Because you'd have to plow through the whole script to realize that it wasn't right. Right, right. <laughs> Bad script. Two, three pages into it, you can tell that this writer...
1: You can tell very quickly.
0: And then you flip, kind of flip through it to see if there's, maybe there's been a twist or a turn that you didn't see coming. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, he woke up and he was a giant cockroach. Go, <laughs> I haven't seen that before. <laughs> yeah. But it, absent that kind of, you know, startling turn, you get to the end of the film and, you, and you, it's a pass. You're not going to recommend anybody else read the script because it's not, it's not worth it. Right. And, and if I was a, a reading scripts for Sundance, I, that's exactly how I would throw out a script.
1: No, oh, Sure. Yeah, you can tell pretty quickly. I always think of it, it's a trajectory thing. It's like, you know, it's like if you want to, if you're aiming at something and you shoot this way, I'm pretty, I don't have to wait it out and see, you know, know, I can tell you're not going to ever hit that target. You're just not going to hit it. There's no way you can correct. Um, You know, you just didn't start in the right place. And in fact, I can't start writing unless I start in the right place.
0: I I find in my my writing, (coughs) I will write the first, if it's journalism, I'll write the lead, and if it's a, a movie script, I'll write the first five, 10 pages 20 times. I mean, mm-hmm. i go over it and over and over it. And then once I get it right, then it flows. Then, then right. each, yes. each, each, and each, the next, and, and you don't Yeah. And you can't write it down fast enough. Yeah. Other times, you know, you finish the scene, and you go, oh, what now? you know what in this scene drives the next scene and you know if nothing then you got to go back and figure out well you know i've got to add something to the scene
1: yeah you didn't start right yeah yeah Yeah. it's
0: it's a a, yeah to lead the viewer on
1: yeah so if you had uh one thing uh that you had to tell somebody who was was starting, interested in the craft, um, interested in getting good at the craft, interested in being a professional, as you say. Um, I always say to, pe- to people um, about being a professional. When, when I was a kid, my stepdad, I asked him the difference between a professional and an amateur. I did, wasn't quite sure. And he said, well, a professional gets paid for what they do. And then I got older and learned things, and I was like, oh, that's not what a professional is. Uh, a professional is somebody who, who you're first, you're professional. Then you get paid, right? Yep. You don't get paid. You know, it's not like you become a professional when you get paid, you can get paid and not be a pro. Right. So yep. you're professional. Then you get paid. Right. And so, uh, and that seems to be in something very specific to you that you don't choke, right. That you can, you can deliver. Um, even on the worst day, you'll deliver something usable. Right. Uh,
0: and, and you learn techniques for getting past the rough spots. And in, in my case, uh, you know, we all run into writer's block where you just you know hit a stone wall and you know I don't know what to write next. Well, my my cure for that is I I keep writing even if it's a grocery list or some you know some character notes from some other script. I just I write a letter to a friend. I write a angry posts on Facebook, I just I write something, just yeah. hammering the words out, and then eventually you go back, you, you get back on track, and then, you're, and then all of a sudden your characters are speaking to you again,
1: and, and, right.
0: and in the best of all possible worlds, the material doesn't come from you, it comes through you.
1: That's you exactly, know? yeah, yeah. A yeah. friend of mine talks about it as being, you're the, um, the midwife. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You just help it be born. Exactly. Um, and when it's working, it really does feel like that. You okay. can't, yeah. So sometimes you can't
0: write fast enough to keep up with the way the story is unfolding. Yeah. I remember once I was writing, uh, writing Crosby's uh, little biography with him. And I had written an introduction that didn't work. And I was, you know, I had written 10 introductions and I finally figured out how to get the book started. And then I was plowed by plowing through the book, and I was getting toward the end. And I I hit a kind of a dead spot. And I started thinking, I said, wait a second. When I was writing the introduction, one of the things I was doing was, because it was an introduction, I was kind of summarizing where the book was going to go. But if you're summarizing where the book was going to go, that's also a summary of where you've been if you get to the end of the book. Right. So I did a cut and paste. I took this introduction, plugged it in to the last, where were the last 20 pages were going to be, and I actually exclaimed out loud, alone in my room with my typewriter, I went, Whoa, it's done. It was just cut and paste. It was just this little section that was wrong for the beginning, but sure. absolutely right for the end that's it, great it, it, did the, it did the job i, mean, I had to you know just minor editing sure and but yeah it but it was in, in in one stroke of the keyboard you know cut and paste i suddenly saved you know six days of writing because i had done it
1: before sure oh that's great so yeah. okay so so your parting bit of uh of uh of uh, information to somebody who's starting out or who wants to get better, who wants to be a pro, who, you know, in, in the way that we're talking about, it. they want to never, be a pro.
0: Never stop writing. Mm-hmm. You know, write when you don't feel like it. Just, you know, it's, writing is what you do. So you have to, you have to write. You're, you're not, if you're not writing, you're not a writer. Uh-huh. Like a lot of people say they're writers. See, Pity the poor actors, because if they don't have a showcase, you know, they, they're not acting. Right? They, they, right. So actors take workshops, and they do they perform in these little awful plays, but they, just, just to have their chops. A writer is not limited. You don't need a theater. All you need right. is a keyboard and a medium to record what your words are, and you're a writer. You can write in pencil on a pad. You can, you know, there's a, a wonderful... Weighty novel called Shantaram, which is about India and the guy who wrote it, wrote it in prison. And the manuscript was destroyed and he had to write it again. Wow. From his memory. Wow. And uh, it, you know, it took years
1: off his life, but. I bet it did. Uh, but he, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good book. It might be better. I've noticed in the, f- the few times when I've lost something, I've like, you know, like in the old days when computers first came around and I would write something and then I'd hit the wrong thing, it would be gone forever, uh, which is harder to do now. Um, I always found that if I had to recreate it, and at first I'd be like, this is ridiculous. It can't be as good. And I wouldn't, I, it would be better. It would be. Um, sometimes, uh,
0: sometimes my, my, my experience has always been that when I lose something, that the recreation is a little forced. I oh, yeah, can't, you can't force it. You can't. Of, yeah, the moments of inspiration that were in the original can't be reproduced. That's, a, th-
1: that's true. So, so it's this. I it's learned
0: very early, very early, <laughs> back up, back up, back up. I, yeah. When I'm working on a script, I don't walk away from the computer, even if it's to go downstairs to get a cup of coffee. I don't walk away from the computer without saving it to a separate hard drive mm-hmm. and to the cloud. Sure. it's saved in at least three places. Sure. Walk away.
1: Sure. Yeah, I <laughs> get that. It's I get that. Too hard to recreate. It. <laughs> well, what I find is at least for me is that it's not about recreation. It's about going, okay, that's gone. Whatever that was, that's, that's gone. But yeah. it's almost as if, um, knowing that it, What the next thing I write, it's more economical. It's like, Oh, I don't need this. I don't need that. Like it's this interesting process of, of pairing it down that doesn't happen if I just write it straight. So yeah. uh, Yeah. I I don't know what that is. And and I can't do it on purpose. I can't look at a scene and figure out how to fix it that way. But if I lose it, I, it's usually better. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, well, you, you get, you get the, you get the luxury I mean, I'm not suggesting that you deliberately lose things and recreate them. But the luxury of having to recreate it and bringing some um, um, experience with those words to the new set of words, you go, oh, I see. The first time I got caught in a trap, and I can avoid that trap this time, I don't have to write the dead-end dialogue that I was writing. <laughs> right, right. I can actually do something. Uh, I, I can actually get to the point better, quicker. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the first time through, I was marking time here. Right. Now I don't have to mark time. I can just go straight to the, the purpose. Because yeah. everything, everything you write, especially in, in dramatic writing, everything has a purpose. There's no wasted... Yeah, dialogue. And there's no dialogue just for the purposes of talking.
1: Yeah, you no. Fact. The
0: first time, first time you finish a script and it's 130 pages, you go, "Whoa! <laughs> there's only so much I can fix by cheating the margins. I'm going to actually have to rewrite more economically." I had an old drama professor who used to say, "He didn't say much that was useful, but he did say Economy begets significance.'" Hmm. Yeah. We- If you have to fit a lot of meaning into a few words, the process of choosing those words will make you a better writer.
1: Yeah, I always, um, you know, I used to talk about simplifying things. It's hard for me to teach people to simplify things, like simplify it, simplify it. And then what I realized is that simplification is really just precision. Yeah. That's all it really is. It's just precision, right? It's only this. It's this and nothing else, you know? um yeah it's just about precision and that maybe is easier for people to swallow than simplicity right be precise you know um you don't need to go into a big thing about how norma ray's never seen a jewish person you don't need to go into it You you know you know just be precise
0: exactly
1: you know uh i i uh I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, th- this is, uh, for me, this is like a dream to be able to talk to you like this. Um, uh, I, uh, Jaws, you've, you've heard a lot of Jaws stories, and you're going to hear one more. So, <laughs> so I, uh, Jaws came out when I was 10. I already wanted to be a filmmaker. I did since I was five. Um, and uh, I desperately wanted to see Jaws, uh, but I was 10, and my mom said no. And, uh, and I was uh, very upset about that. Still a little upset about it uh, and because I think it would have had a real impact on uh, my imagination, the way things do when you're young. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you that I, I did see it. Uh, I didn't want to watch it on TV. I didn't want to watch it cut up. So I didn't see it for a while. And then VCRs became, came into existence and I was able to watch it at, at home. And I remember going to school. So this is like five years later. I'm like 15, 16 years old. I remember going to school the next day talking about how amazing jaws was and everybody it was old news to everybody so they were all like yeah yeah i'm like no this is the coolest movie ever and they're like we all know that brian but but for me it was this big thing i mean i maybe it was better that i saw it when i did i don't know but it was um it's uh it's really a compass for me when i write if i if i can be that good yeah oh yeah and I'm not the only person. Uh, so thank you for putting that into the world and, and, uh, and giving that to the world. Uh, it, it means the world to me to talk to you. Oh, thank
2: you. Thank you. Th-
1: thank you. And it was great. So right. thank you. Thanks for all your wisdom and, and, uh, and all of that.
0: Thank uh, you. I, I, was, I, I, was, I, thought I had a parting thought. If I think of it, I'll send it to
1: you. <laughs> please do. Please, please do. Thank you so much, Carl.
0: It was uh, advice to new writers. But...
1: Okay. Well, if it comes up, let me know. We'll... <laughs> I will indeed. Okay. Thank right. you so much, Carl. Right. I really appreciate this.
0: My buddy.
1: You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft is produced in Seattle, Washington by Belief Agency.